Well, we are getting into our uh, summer sermon series. This is Zephaniah, and it is a call to repentance. Um, so you might be wondering, where in the Bible is Zephaniah? So if you go to the New Testament, you go to Matthew, and you go back a few pages, you'll go through a couple short books, and you'll get to Zephaniah. Today we're in uh, chapter 1, and we're going to hit verses 14 through 18. And we are looking at the day of the Lord. And in this passage, Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord, but it raises three questions about the day of the Lord. And that is, what is the day of the Lord? The second question is, why is there a day of the Lord? And the, se- uh, the third question is, what does that mean for us? So these three questions uh, about the day of the Lord are basically, what, why, and so what? So we're talking about the day of the Lord. What is it? Why is there a day of the Lord? And what does it mean for us? Now, if you remember, throughout all of the book of Zephaniah, He has two recurring themes, and that first theme is that Zephaniah shows God's judgment to all people, Israelites and pagan, if they fail to keep him as their only God. And again, that's going to be the focus of the passage today. But the second overarching theme in Zephaniah is that God reveals his patience, his graciousness, and his call to repentance. Those who humbly call on him and repent will be restored instead of judged. So we'll go ahead and get into verse 14, Um, and it says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. Now in verse 14, Zephaniah introduces us to the idea of the day of the Lord, and if we stopped there, none of our questions would be answered. But we get to keep reading, and since we keep reading, Zephaniah starts to answer our first question, and that first question is, what is the day of the Lord? So as we're reading through that, I want you to be thinking, what is the day of the Lord? So we're going to pick up in verse 15. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of darkness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. You see, there was a children's book that later turned into a movie, and it was called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Now, I think it's fair to say that the day of the Lord surpasses even the terribleness of Alexander's day. See, Zephaniah paints a pretty scary picture for the day of the Lord, but it can be summed up in one word. Now, one word is right there, wrath. It's in verse 15, wrath. So the day of the Lord is a day of wrath. But I think it's also helpful if we look at what other prophets have to say about the day of the Lord and how other prophets describe the day of the Lord. Our first one we're going to look at is Isaiah 13. We'll pick up in um, verse 6. Now, this is a little bit of a long passage. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, everyone's hands will become weak, and every man will lose heart. They They will be horrified. Pain and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor, and they will look at each other, their faces flushed with fear. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with rage and burning anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked people for their iniquities. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humiliate the insolence of the tyrants." Continuing in verse 12, I will make a human more sacrifice, or I will make a human more scarce than fine gold, and mankind more rare than the gold of Ophir. <clears throat> Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will shake from its foundations, and the wrath of the Lord of the armies, or the Lord of armies, on the day of, the, of his burning anger. <clears throat> 
Like the wandering gazelles and like sheep without a shepherd, each one will turn to his own people. Each one will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be stabbed, and whoever is caught will die by the sword. Their children will be stabbed, or their children will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted, their wives raped. Look, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who cannot be bought off with silver, and who have no desire for gold. Their bows will, or their bows will cut young men to pieces. They will have no compassion on offspring, and they will look with no pity on children. They will not look with pity on the children. That was a little bit of a long passage. But again, it's very similar outlook as the passage in Zephaniah. One more, we get Amos chapter 5, uh, verses 18 to 20. It says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will that day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without brightness in it? So if we put these uh, prophecies together, we can summarize the day of the Lord in this way. We can say a few things about the day of the Lord. First, the day of the Lord will be a day that God will destroy Judah. Second, the day of the Lord will be totally devastating and there will be no escape. And finally, all of those who assisted Judah in their idolatry, like Egypt, they will also fall. If you want a detailed account of what this prophecy is talking about. If you want a detailed historical account for that, you can go to 2 Kings chapter 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. Those two passages tell about King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, destruction of the, the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah and how he broke through the northern walls and destroyed the entire city. The very few people that were actually left, he actually took them in, into slavery and, and into the exile. So, the day of the Lord, it's pretty gloomy. It's not very, not, not very much of a, a happy day. Like I said, it was, uh, when I was talking about Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, that doesn't even begin to describe the day of the Lord. It's God's wrath poured out against the nation of Judah, against the kingdom of Judah, against God's people. So that leads us to our next question. Why? Why is there a day of the Lord? So first was the what. The what, of the what is the day of the Lord? It's God's wrath against Judah. So why is there a day of the Lord? We pick that up in verse 17. It says, I will bring distress on mankind, and they will walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. So the day of the Lord that Zephaniah warns about is a time when God will punish Judah, the southern kingdom, for their unfaithfulness. So let's review a little bit. If you've been here the past few weeks, this will be review. So the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms after King Solomon died. You had the northern kingdom, and they carried the name of Israel. They kept that name of Israel. Now, the northern kingdom, had they were, they were plagued by kings who are described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this evil that it's talking about is that they led the nation away from God by practicing an idolatry and syncretism. So syncretism is mixing religions. So that was why the northern kingdom was punished. The northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. Now the southern kingdom, which had the name of Judah, the southern kingdom was allowed to survive a little bit longer because several of the southern kingdom's kings, several of Judah's kings, are described as doing right in the sight of the Lord. And so they were allowed to survive a little bit longer. However, 
many of their kings are also described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And for that reason, we have the day of the Lord. We have the wrath. The day of the Lord, God's wrath, comes because of Judah's sins. Uh, That's what it says right here. Because they have sinned against the Lord. This is why we have the day of the Lord. And see, since God is perfect and holy, sin is an, an affront against His character. When we sin, it is an attack against God. It is a personal attack on Him. We can define sin into three categories. First, we have sin of commission. This is when you are doing things that God has told you not to do. And we can look at things like murder. Well, that's really easy. You know, I don't think anybody in here has murdered anybody. right? Or maybe even lying. I think we can all say we're guilty of lying at one point or another in our life. I think all of us have lied. So those are our sins of commission. Those are doing things that God has told you not to do. Other things, another category of sin would be a sin of omission. This is not doing something that God has told you to do. Right? This could be witnessing. We're talking a lot about witnessing in Sunday school in our book, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. You know, that book is about talking to people about Jesus and just being willing to have that conversation with people. God has told us to have that conversation. God has told us to spread the good news of his kingdom. So when we don't do that, that is a sin of omission. Other sins of omission that I think we would all be guilty of at one point or another would be honoring our mother and father. At one point or another in our lives, especially probably when we were teenagers, we may not have been very honoring of our parents. So sins of omission would be another one. The final category of sin would be sins of cognition. These are our thinking sins, things like envy or lust. And it's really easy to fall into those sins because there's no outward appearance of them. And I can look like I'm living a holy life, all the while, I'm having these sins of cognition going on. So I think with the way that we've defined sin, we can easily say that we can look around in our community and see all those sins all around us, yes? But we don't see those at all here in victory. No, 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 that's not true. When we look in the mirror, we can see all of these sins. However, no matter how you define it or how you categorize it or how you break it down, Every sin is a sin against God. Every sin is a personal sin against God. And see, since God is just, those sins must be punished. See, if God were allow, if God were to allow sin to continue without punishing it, then that would be unjust and therefore outside of his character. See, sin led Judah away from God into a place of brokenness. It does the same thing to us. The brokenness from our sin encompasses all parts of our lives, from our health to our relationships to our our money. It affects the creation around us. But most importantly, sin affects our relationship with God. Our sin breaks our relationship with God. See, because of sin, because of our sin, because of your sin, because of my sin, We deserve the same fate as Judah. We deserve the same wrath as Judah. But you know what? Maybe there's hope. Maybe there's something we can do about it. So let's keep reading and see what Zephaniah says. That's our last point. So what? Right? We know what the day of the Lord is. It's a day of wrath against Judah. We know why there was a day of the Lord. It's because of Judah's sin. And the third point is, so what? What can we do about it? 
What does it mean for us? Right? How can we avoid this? So we pick up in verse 18. It says, Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them. On the day of the Lord's wrath, the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. It says, Their silver and gold will be unable to rescue them. You see, the brokenness that I talked about earlier, we all feel it in our lives. And people try all sorts of things to fix it. One way that people try to fix the brokenness is to earn a whole lot of money and buy a whole lot of stuff, get a whole lot of things. And they find hope in their material possessions. They think that money will make them happy and solve all their problems. See, this just simply isn't true. The New York Times released the results from a study last week. Um, And the study was the Why of Wealth report. Now, this study found that while wealthy people don't have the same set of struggles that families in poverty or even middle-class families have, that wealth comes with its own set of problems. That wealth does not buy happiness. It just creates other problems. The, the cost of that wealth, it's not just the work that they put into it. A lot of times the cost of that wealth is their families or their friends or time that they could have spent in something else. So the cost of that wealth may be more of a problem than actually getting the wealth itself. So this passage also makes me think of preppers. Right? Preppers are people who are trying to prepare for some type of apocalypse. You know, it could be something born out of fiction, like zombies, or it could be some fear that they have due to the political climate that we're in right now. But for some reason, zombie, or the zombies, the preppers think that the world or our, our society is going to collapse And we have to do everything that we can to be prepared when that happens. And so these people are spending a lot of money on buying, you know, uh, what they call stable foods. Foods that will survive on your shelf for a long time and still be good to eat. MREs are a good example of that. Or they'll buy bunkers that they can have, uh, you know, that will withstand gunfire. Or maybe even some of them have bought... um, the missile silos, so that if there's a, 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 a nuclear bomb, then they're going to be okay. And they find hope in this, because their things, the, the things that they have, will keep them safe. Or they'll, they'll go out and they'll spend time and learn these skills that they can learn to survive without modern conveniences, like electricity or running water. You know, I don't really think of how convenient running water is, but... Just think, if, if we didn't have our running water, oh my goodness, I don't know what I would do. And so these preppers are going out and they're trying to learn to live in a way that they don't have to have this stuff. And they're finding hope in their material possessions. But ultimately, both of these lifestyles, whether it's trying to accumulate wealth and possessions or whether it's that prepper lifestyle, both of these lifestyles suffer from the same flaw. These people are finding hope in the things of this world. And see, other ways that people try to fix the brokenness that they feel is to try to fix their earthly relationships. They, they spend time trying to fix their relationships in their family and in their church home. Now, these, these are good things, spending time with your family and working on the relationships in your family, working on the relationships in your church. Those are good things. But ultimately, ultimately, that cannot be what our hope is in. Ultimately, our hope can't be there. So what do we have to hope for then? 
What could Judah have done to prevent the day of the Lord? What can we do to prevent the same fate as Judah? Nothing. There's no way that we can make up for our sins against God. What about trying to do good things? Right? What about trying to do th- good things to make up for our sins? Well, Isaiah 64, 6 says that even when we try to do good works, they are stained by our sin and they are an offense to God. The penalty for sin is death and they're an eternal punishment in hell. That's what we all deserve. The end. That's it. I'm just kidding. That's not the end. Right? Because there are two overarching themes in Zephaniah. Remember, the first theme is God's punishment against those people who fail to keep him as their only God. And the second theme of Zephaniah is God's call to repentance. God's call to repentance. His call that if you will humbly follow me, then you will be spared. See, we get to look at the New Testament. And we get to see how God answers our brokenness. We can't fix it. Like I said, there's nothing that we can do to fix our brokenness. There's nothing that Judah could have done on their own to prevent the day of the, the, day of the Lord. But God can. God can fix it. This is why John 3.16 has become one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Because we all know that we are sinners. We all recognize our sin. We all recognize our brokenness. And we all recognize that no matter how hard we try, we are still sinners. So God sent his son to die for us. God sent his son to live that perfect life that we couldn't live, to pay the penalty for our sin. And when we believe in him, then we will be saved. As it says in Romans 10.9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what can we do to prevent the same fate as Judah? Nothing but to place our faith in Jesus. That brings us to our application points. Now, our application is broken down into three points, knowing, being, and doing. Those come from our definition of a disciple where we see that a disciple is growing or is identified by and growing in these three categories, knowing, being, and doing. And so this knowing, our application point from this, from this verse for knowing is to know that the day of the Lord, God's judgment against Judah, is a foreshadowing of our judgment if we fail to heed Zephaniah's call to repentance. Know that as sinners, our just reward is eternity in hell. And so the second, the second application point, the being part, is, is to be saved. Be saved through faith in Jesus. See, he came to live the perfect life that we could not live. And yet he took the punishment for our sin through his sacrifice on the cross. He was resurrected on the third day in victory over sin and death. And we, when we accept him as our Lord and place our faith in him, then we are saved from God's wrath. Our relationship with God is reconciled. The brokenness in our life can begin to be healed, and we can recover and pursue God's design in our life. And finally, our final application point is doing. This is to share this message. Like Zephaniah went out and shared with the, the people of Judah to repent, to call out humbly on the name of the Lord. That's our job, is to go out and to tell the people around us to repent and call out on the name of Jesus. Now, A lot of this message, most of this message, or some people could even argue that all of this message is specifically for non-believers. 
specifically for people who don't know Jesus and have never surrendered their life to him. And I could say, I I see where you're coming from there. But Christians, when we look at this passage, this is a warning for us as well. Because we look at Judah. These were Israelites. These were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They had every opportunity to believe. They had every opportunity to surrender to, G- uh, to surrender to Yahweh. And yet they turned away from him. They had that relationship built from their fathers and their father's fathers. They had that relationship and that the, the community built around Yahweh. And they still turned away from him. So for us sitting here, for those of us who know the Lord, This is a warning for us still not to turn away from him. For those of us who have never surrendered to Jesus, it's a warning for for you as well that now is the time to surrender. Today is the day. Let today be the day. And as I've said several times before, we can never outgrow our need to depend on the gospel. Whether you're being saved for the first time today or whether you've been saved for 80 years, you can never outgrow your need to depend on the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I thank you for your word. And in this message, Lord, I thank you for the warning that you gave to us. But most of all, I thank you for your son, Jesus, that he came to pay the penalty for our sin, that he came so that our relationship with you could be reconciled. Father, I pray this morning that you will allow us to open our hearts to hear that message. Father, I pray that that you will pour that message on thick into our hearts. Help us, Lord, not to run away from it, but to surrender to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response, and you can respond in your seat, or you can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.